too far, we'll, we'll cover at least the first couple of, of verses today as part of the introduction. Um, but for this morning, I would like to start reading, um, let's just read verses 1 through um, 6 this morning. Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. Here now is the word of the living and true God. The Apostle Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, um... <laughs> Before we begin, I must confess to you that the book of Ephesians holds a very special place um, in my heart. Um, it was about uh, 11 years ago um, that I had the book of Ephesians open to the second chapter. And, um, and through the, the reading of God's word and through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, God changed my life and I was never the same after that, that moment. And so... Um, I don't know about the rest of you, but, um, you know, um, those texts that you're in that you feel that God used just become a little extra special. Um, and I've learned quite a while ago not to make any favorite books because the favorite book's always the next one that I'm, I'm studying. So, <laughs> that, so anyways, uh, but Ephesians is, is really um, up there. Um, humanly speaking, I mean, Romans may be the most impressive of Paul's letters, but um, many say Ephesians is the most elegant. Um, it's opening doxology, which is verses 3 uh, to 14, we just read a portion of it, are just blessings that come casking, cascading down upon the reader. And then in its um, closing chapter, Ephesians chapter 6, is the smell of the battlefield lies heavily amongst the reader as he's looking through the smoke at war and we see a, a Christian fully clad in the armor of God standing firm. I mean, it's just from beginning to end, Ephesians sets before us the wonder of God's grace, the, pri the privilege of belonging to Christ's church, and the pattern of life transformation that the, the gospel produces. Um, William Barclay in his commentary on the book of Ephesians calls it the queen of the epistles while others have called it the crown of St. Paul's writings. Um, John McKay, the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, who was converted in his youth, he writes, um, through reading and studying the book of Ephesians, says the greatest, maturest, and for our time, the most relevant of all of Paul's writings. Um, but the point that I would like to make as we begin a study of this book today is that in the book of Ephesians, the, if the book of Ephesians is so profound and deep and relevant and meaningful, it's not because it expounds um, mysterious doctrines um, that are nearly unfathomable and wouldn't otherwise be known to us if it wasn't for this book. Um, but because it presents in the, in the most simplest of forms, 
um, compelling language of those doctrines which are basic to all Christianity. Um, and this is incredibly important because scholars have noted at least 27 distinct um, doctrines that the book of Ephesians presents. As we will see, Paul deals with God the Father, Christ, the Holy Spirit, obviously the triune God, God's sovereignty, the will of God, creation, the unseen realm, angels, demons, Satan, the mystery of the church is a major theme throughout this epistle, the doctrine of election, predestination, regeneration, adoption, and many others. 27 different doctrines in just six chapters. And yet the point I want to make is that there is not one of these doctrines that is not found anywhere else in scripture, and sometimes um, even at much greater length than other texts. Um, but what makes the book of Ephesians truly amazing is in its few pages, it covers an extraordinary range of theological topics in its simplest form. And it presents the doctrines of Christianity comprehensively, clearly, and most important, at the last three chapters, practically. This is how we, we apply this teaching. Or another way to put it is the central doctrine in this letter to the Ephesians is the doctrine of the church. That's another major theme that we see coming in the book of Ephesians. Um, Paul's laying out God's new society that he's creating. And therefore, there's a sense in which all these other doctrines I just mentioned and others have bearing upon the church. And as we study them, we find, therefore, their practical application to us as we're trying to live out as God's new society in a fallen world. These doctrines tell us not only who we are, but whose we are. Um, how we came to be as we are and what we must now do in light of that destiny. I like what theologian John Scott writes. He said of Ephesians, quote, The whole letter is thus a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty, Christian faith and Christian life, of what God has done through Christ and what we must do in consequence. End quote. The book of Ephesians begins by teaching us that the study of theology must be combined with praise and adoration for our awesome God, for all the work that it is that he has done for us. This letter also summarizes what it means to be a follower of Christ. It clarifies the heart of the Christian faith. It explores the dynamics of a personal relationship with Christ. It sets forth God's overall plan for the church and draws out the implications of what it means to live as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Ephesians is also distinct from Paul's other letters in that there is no major conflict or situation that is glaring um, that has prompted the apostle to, to write Ephesians. Um, for instance, there's no Jewish um, Christians asserting the need for circumcision amongst the Gentiles or, or calendar observances um, like in the book of Galatians. There are no divisions over loyalty to different leaders as there is in 1 Corinthians saying. Paul doesn't have to address any false teaching that's infiltrated the church as we just saw the response of Paul in the book of Colossians. This doesn't mean, however, that... Um, the, book, the church of Ephesus is problem free. 
and they just simply need a little pat on the back. No far from it. Um, there are concerns, but they are more um, general in nature. There's a hint of ongoing tension between the Jews and Gentiles in the church. That is throughout all these um, early first century churches. And Paul has a continuing um, pastoral concern about um, helping Christians who have converted from the background of um, magical practices and the occult um, in the city of Ephesus, as well as their allegiance to um, all the different false deities and gods um, that became deeply rooted in their relationship to Christ and Christ's power. They kept mixing up the, the power of the false gods and, and diluting and mixing um, faith and power in Christ. And, and Paul wants his many Gentile readers to keep growing in their, their new lifestyle as believers by ceasing their, their formal sinful practices and living out the virtues commended to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that Paul wants them to know is just how rich they are in Christ. Just how rich they are in Christ. And this becomes really an important theme throughout this book. Um, see, Paul wants to make sure they are not like um, that poor elderly couple who years ago were found dead in their apartment from malnutrition. And when investigators um, went in their home after, they found $40,000 wrapped in paper bags, stuffed in their closet. Um, the book of Ephesians is written to Christians who may be prone to treat their spiritual resources much like that miserly couple treated their financial resources. They had the resources right there, but it was useless because they never used it. Far too often such believers are in danger of suffering from, we'll call it spiritual malnutrition. Why? Because they do not take advantage of the great storehouse of spiritual nourishment and resources that are at their disposal. This is why some have called this book the treasure house of the Bible. Because this beautiful letter tells Christians of their great riches and, and inheritance and fullnesses they have in Jesus Christ and his church. And therefore, no Christian has any reason to be spiritually deprived or malnourished or even impoverished. Too many times Christians walk around like they're spiritually bankrupt, defeated, and quite honestly, no use for the kingdom. We have to understand the Lord's heavenly resources are more than adequate to cover all of our past debts, our present liabilities, and all of our future needs. That's the wonder of God's glorious provision for his children. God's heavenly bank has zero limitations. You can't over withdraw. There are no restrictions. And we'll see all these truths throughout the book of Ephesians. It's a book about who you are, how rich you are, and how to use those riches for God's glory. And I want you to see this idea of riches and fullness and inheritance by just a couple illustrations by way of introduction into this. For example, um, at the end of uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, it talks about the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. Then notice at the end of chapter 3, verse 8. Again, it talks about the unfathomable riches of Christ. The, the unfathomable riches of Christ. And then in chapter 3, in verse 16, he talks about the riches of of his glory. 
the riches of his glory. So you have the riches of his grace, the riches of his son, the riches of his glory. In other words, God is unloading all of his riches in the book of Ephesians. Also, you might be interested to know the word grace is used 14 times. The word grace means God, um, unmerited, undeserved kindness and favor. Um, grace is behind all this lavishness that God is pouring out. It's God's grace. The word glory is used eight times. The word inheritance is used four times. The word riches is used five times. The words fullness or filled or filled up are used six times. And, and then the key phrase, in Christ or in him, um, is used in amazing 15 times, 11 times in just the first chapter, in him, in Christ, in him, in Christ. As Christ is the source and he is the, the guarantee of every spiritual blessing of those who are in him and have access to all that he has and he is. Because we are redeemed, because we are one with Christ in his church, this incredible fullness is also ours. Maybe really to sum it all up, we can look at chapter 3 at the end of verse 19, where Paul talks about this. And he says that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. <laughs> this is just incredible. If we could just stay right there, right there, aware that Christ dwells in your heart through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses Knowledge that literally every believer can be filled with all the fullness of God Himself. That we would know the unsearchable riches of Christ, that He who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that has worked within us. You see, it's all these just incredible, grandiose promises that go far beyond what most of us are tapping into. This is the riches, the fullness of resources that are available to us, and they are all in this book of Ephesians. And so the guarantee for the believer in all of this is where it says, in Christ. You've got to be in Christ. <laughs> This isn't just for anyone. And as secure as Christ is in the plan of God and in the love of the Father, and as available as all the resources of God are to Christ, so they are to you. You don't believe me, do you? Guess what? Our union with Christ, according to Romans, we become what? We become joint heirs. Joint heirs. Fellow heirs with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. We abide in the vine. 
We possess what he possesses, and all of his riches are at our disposals. And so that is one of the themes of Ephesians. It's all because that we are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you're rich beyond measure. It's all based on him. It's not anything that we have done. It's not anything that we have earned. It's all his. And he graciously gives it to us. And so Ephesians is a book where you can check out your resources. Really. Um, now, just like in the book of Colossians, Ephesians is a book that really can be split in half. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, um, Paul definitely is emphasizing doctrine. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. In the last three chapters, he's em emphasizing our behavior. The first half is theological. The second half is practical. Um, so just like it was in Colossians, except that was only four chapters. Also, because we are in Christ and we are in his body, the church, and Ephesians focuses on the basic doctrine of the church, what it is and how believers function within it. And the key thought relative to the church is the statement of Paul that is made in the third chapter in verses 3 to 6. Notice what it says. Ephesians chapter 3, 3 through 6. Paul writes that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. So essentially what Paul is saying here is this truth about the church was revealed to him by revelation, meaning by the, by the Spirit of God, by God. And he says it, it was made known to him as this mystery. As I, as I wrote before to you in brief. Verse, verse 4. By referring to this, what, what he wrote before, when you read it, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So, in other words, this mystery which has been hidden from even Israel, God's chosen people from time past, is, verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, circle that term, the body, in verse 6. It, it's key in understanding Paul's definition of the church. And, and just stay with me here. If this is sounding confusing, we're going to walk through this just for a minute. Um, you'll understand at the end what, what Paul's getting at here. He's describing the church as a mystery. Now, now what's he mean by the mystery? What, why is it the mystery? In, in verse uh, 3, go back to verse 3, he says, Through God's revelation, there was made, made known to me the mystery. Then again in verse 4, he says, When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, he says. Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. So, whatever this mystery is, it wasn't made known to the sons of men. That's talking about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So, whatever this is, they didn't know about it. And, and what is it? What is it? Verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the hidden secret of the past was revealed to Paul. And what was it? It was that the Gentile and the Jew would be one body in the church. 
Now, stay with that, and we're going to go expand. We're going to leave that thought, and we're going to go expand on it for a little bit. Let's talk for a moment about how God reveals things. Because this is a mystery and a secret, and some people don't know about it, what's been revealed to Paul. God likes to keep secrets. He likes to do this sort of thing. But we need to understand how he does it and why he does it. And to help you understand this, there are basically, I'm going to just say there are three ways. There are probably more. But to keep it simple, three ways I want to show you. Number one, there are some things that God never tells to anyone. All right? There are some things that God never tells to anyone. Um, these are things that he will never reveal to anyone at any time. You don't know them. I don't know them. Nobody knows them. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, discipleship group, you'll remember this. It tells us about these things. It says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. In other words, there are some things that God reveals to us but the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. Those things stay with him. So God has some things that are always going to be kept a secret. All right? That was number one. Number two, God has some secrets that he reveals to special people throughout history. God has some secrets that he reveals to special people throughout history. Now, the special people to whom God reveals his will to are not an elite group of holier-than-now uh, people, but your average, everyday believers like you. Anything that God has ever revealed to his people is for all people to know. That's why it's recorded in the word of God. So that is not a secret. It's been revealed to us. Anyone can read it. We all know about it. Psalm 25, verse 14, it says this, the secret of the, secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them known his covenant. So the, people who, um, so the people of God who are those who fear him, they're the ones who will know his truth. So let's just cover these again. Number one, there are some things that God has chosen not to disclose to any man at any time. Number two category, there are some truths that God has chosen to reveal to his people throughout history. And then I'm going to come up with a third category. It's kind of like in between those two. There are some truths that God has kept secret for a period of time, but finally, he has revealed those to his people in the New Testament. Here, God gives new truth for a new age, truth about which even the, the godliest of Old Testament saints were totally unaware of. Think about that. You realize we know things today that some of the greatest Old Testament patriarchs never even dreamed of? I mean, isn't it in Hebrews that's talking about how Abraham longed to know the promise, and God says he never got to see it. But he trusted by faith. He, he believed what God had said. In fact, the Old Testament prophets used to look at their own writings, trying to figure out who this Messiah was that they were writing about, and, one, and when he was to come. You guys remember when we covered this in, in 1 Peter chapter 1? Says, and, and he said it was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit that they were not talking about the, the prophets here, writing the prophecy. It was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit that they were not serving themselves. So they were not writing prophecies for themselves. But for you, the, the New Testament reader. And the things which they prophesied about because they would never live to see 
their fulfillment. These were hundreds, thousands of years in the future, uh, especially concerning prophecy of Messiah. Never mind prophecies of the, of the end times. But they, they longed to, to know. They searched, the, they studied the scriptures after the, the revelation came to them. And they said, who is this Messiah? When is he to come? Imagine Isaiah writing Isaiah 53 and saying, what? Messiah is going to be bruised, crushed? And so there are truths that God has kept secret for a period of time, but has finally revealed it to his people in the New Testament. So throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul's going to talk about this mystery. But why does, again, why does he call it a mystery? Why doesn't he just call it the church? Well, because in this context, the mystery simply means something that has been hidden and is now revealed in the New Testament. It's the idea of something being veiled. It's the same thing when we see shadows and, and types. Something not yet fully realized, but always a part of the sovereign plan of God. And what was this mystery? That the church would come into existence and that it would be one body incorporating Jew and Gentile into one living organism. And that is something the Old Testament saints never saw. They never saw it. They were always separated from the Gentiles. They were pagans. And it was a mystery to them. Now has been revealed through Paul. And so even though we live in a very dark time, we are also incredibly blessed, are we not? I mean, we have the full counsel of God, the completed text. We know things today that people in all of history of God dealing with man never knew. We have spiritual truth, spiritual resources that they never had. Do you realize this? I mean, we are rich. And that's the basis of which the riches of Ephesians is made available. It's this new age, this new time, new truth that they never could have dreamed about knowing in the past that now has come true in what? The person of Christ. The person of Christ. Christ dwelling in you. Never mind the incarnation that we read about in Colossians. What do you mean? Christ living in you? And that he would be a man? And so the book of Ephesians will unlock all of that for us. And, and my prayer is that when you know, at the cross really learns these truths and, and we stop being sort of a group of, of separate people and we can start really functioning like one uh, cohesive body, um, coordinating and mutually um, ministering to one another with authentic um, sacrificial love and, and sharing with each other and we begin to, to be the body of Christ that God has called us to be. And then we'll really to be, begin to understand the riches of our resources in Christ and how you take those riches and those resources and we use them for his glory. And so with that as the background, I just want to spend just the last few minutes covering this introduction of chapter 1. It's only two verses. I split up into to, uh, three short points. So let's just look at those quickly. Um, point number one. As we look at the apostle. The apostle. Notice... Chapter 1 and verse 1, we're going to just read the uh, first part of the verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Well, the first thing we need to ask ourselves is who is Paul, right? And I'm sure uh, most of you here all know who, who the apostle Paul is. But we do have to stop and think Paul was really the most unlikely 
of authors of this book. I mean, really, by his own admission, he was a persecutor of the Lord's church. When he was Saul of Tarsus, Acts 9, verse 1 tells us, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's people. And after getting his papers from the high priest, we see him in, in Acts chapter 9. He's, he's headed towards Damascus, right? He, he's looking for any belonging to the way. So he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem. Earlier in Acts chapter 7, he was the man that the men laid their, their uh, robes, their cloaks, at the young man Saul's feet when they were stoning Stephen to death, the first Christian martyr. And it goes on to say that Saul, in hearty approval, was in hearty approval with putting Stephen to death. So when he says he persecuted the church, Paul, in fact, had blood on his hands. He hated Christ. He hated his church. In fact, in Galatians, he said he even tried to destroy it. That's why he says later that he was the least of the apostles, not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But God had a plan. God had a plan to take Saul and to completely change his life, make him a disciple of Jesus, and call him Paul. As only by the grace of God, Jesus shows up on that, that Damascus Road experience and he knocks him right off of his high horse, doesn't he? And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And isn't that interesting? Saul was persecuting the church and the Lord says, why are you persecuting me? And we know the rest of the story as God knits this whole thing together as only he can and here was a man who was literally dragging Christians to jail, and yet 25 or 30 years later, we find Paul here writing the epistle to the Ephesians from where? A jail. Because of his relationship to Jesus Christ. The ways of God are beyond our comprehension. He was attempting to drag people to jail, and God arrested Saul. And so Paul is the most unlikely of authors. But as he says in Ephesians 2, 4, but God, but God, right? And when God shows up, he can change everything in a moment. But God. And Paul experienced the risen Christ that day. And he fell on his knees. And what did he say? Who are you, Lord? Right? Lord. And Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, I've got a plan for your life. How do you explain that? But God. But God. See, God had a plan God has a purpose in all of it because God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so God mercifully saved him, redeemed him, cleansed him, renewed him. And for three years 
he taught him in, out in Damascus. Now in verse 1, he calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. The term apostle means one who is sent, and in the New Testament is used as an official title of the men God uniquely chose to be the foundational layers of the church. We actually see this in Revelation, right? They're the foundation. And the reason why we don't have apostles on earth today is for two reasons. Number one, they had to be chosen by God himself. And number two, they had to be a witness of the resurrected Lord. And we see that standard set in Acts chapter 1 as the 11 looked um, for Judas's replacement, right? And the men who had been with Christ, they were looking for someone who had been in the beginning of the ministry back with John the Baptist and who had witnessed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So needless to say, there can't be any apostles today as some claim, as it is God who sets the standard. And so Paul says, not only am I an apostle, but I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This was not of his own accord. Paul was not looking to become an apostle. He was looking for everything but that when he was knocked off his horse, and it was by the will of God, meaning that God made Paul an apostle. He was arrested by his grace. I love what Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 15. He says, but when God, who had set me apart even from, look, my mother's womb, and called me through his grace and was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach among the Gentiles. And Paul goes on to say, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. You see, Paul didn't need to go check in with the rest of the apostles because it was God who had called him into ministry. And so number one, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, is the author writing this epistle. Number two, we see the audience. Number two, the audience. Notice the second half of verse one. To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Here we see the, the dual designation of a believer. From God's side, believers are those whom he has made holy, which, by the way, is the meaning of this word saints. It's hagios in the Greek, and it means set apart or holy. And the idea is that those who possess holiness are thus set apart or who are separated by God unto sin. And it really has to do with our standing, not our state. Our standing, not our state. In other words, if you ask a Christian if they're holy, many are going to say to you, are you kidding me? I'm not holy. And what they're talking about is their state. They're not talking about their standing with God. In God's eyes, we are perfectly holy in Christ from the moment that we are justified. By his grace. But practically speaking, we are becoming more holy through sanctification, right? And so the idea here is they are saints because they have been set apart unto Christ. And really, it's a beautiful picture of salvation that we enjoy in Christ. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins and without any hope. Well, praise be to God for us. Titus 3, 4 through 7 says... When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us 
richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. And so Paul is writing to the saints who are at Ephesus. And then the second part of that phrase is who are faithfully in Christ Jesus. Now, now this is from man's side. As believers are those who are described as faithful in Christ Jesus. And this word has the idea of being trustworthy. Someone who is faithful is also trustworthy and, and dependable and reliable. And this describes the perseverance of the saints. That it's not up to you to lose your salvation. It's not how we begin the Christian life. Many times it's how we end. Are you faithful? Do we remain faithful? There are those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. They are the ones who have put their, fight, their faith in Christ alone. But the second part of that is that we are abiding in Christ, that we remain faithful. We're not one of those three soils that never produce soil as the seeds are dropped on it because of the thorns and the thickets and the stones and such. We are the good soil that produces fruit and yields a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and another thirty. And it's all to the praise and the glory of God. It's all because we are in the vine. For apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. And so we've seen the apostle, we've seen the audience, and then lastly, look at verse 2 and the author. The author. Please notice verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's common greeting. We see this in many of his letters, but these are not just empty words. Uh, these are not just some script that he repeats. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, no two words meaning grace and, and peace are more important in the whole of our faith. Yet how lightly we tend to drop them off our tongues without even stopping to think about what they really mean. And I mentioned earlier that grace is used um, at least 12 times in the short epistle, and it means unmerited favor. Grace is un unmerited favor. Grace is something you do not deserve, uh, I think about the story of the prodigal son, right? Young man comes to his father, basically declares his own father is dead because he says, I want my inheritance now. Even though you're still alive, I want it now. And he takes the money and he goes off into prodigal living, chasing women, being a drunk, until one day he finds himself in the middle of a pig slop, having nothing to eat but the pig scraps from the pen. When he finally comes to the end of himself and realizes that being a slave on my father's estate is better than standing here amongst the swine eating their pods. And so he goes to his father, and you know what happens with the rest of the story. His father runs to him. He doesn't wait and stand. He runs to the son, and he wraps his arms around him. And before he's even able to get home, he, he, he has the, the fattened calf slaughtered, and, and he dresses him with the robe and he gives him unmerited favor he restores him to where he was before a son a son that is grace that is grace you and i standing amongst the pig sloth and sin and filth and jesus christ running not walking running to us 
putting his arm around us, saying, this is the one who is lost, who has now been found. This one is mine. I found my lost sheep, my lost coin. And then we see the second word, peace. And believers, we've talked about this, really have two kinds of peace. We, we know that from the scriptures that before we are saved, we are enemies of God. Uh, we are born with our, or with our backs to God. We, we, we hate God. We hate his word. Romans 3.11 says that no one understands. No one seeks after God. We have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. We've all turned aside and become worthless. And so when we receive Christ and his grace, we now have peace with God as he ends that war. So that's the peace with God. And then, then the second kind of peace is, is that peace of God. The peace of God. The, the peace that surpasses all understanding. The, the peace that God gives us in, in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of a storm. And notice also this peace comes from both God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not something that Paul gives. This is not something that we can give. Grace comes from God. Peace comes from Christ. And Paul says it comes from our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, we see two of the three members of the triune Godhead right here in verse 2. So, you know, Paul may append this book, but make no mistake about it, the author is God. The author is God. Peter talks about the fact that holy men were moved by the Holy Spirit as the books were written. Yes, we see their, their personalities and, and some traits, we see different senses of, of their, their works, but it's written by the Holy Spirit as all scripture is breathed out by God. And so it is the inspired, inerrant word of God. Paul says to Timothy, it's all inspired from the beginning to end. That's why we preach the whole counsel of God here at the cross. Verse by verse, we don't skip over any of it. If it's in the Bible, we're going to teach it. For everything is profitable for teaching and, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. And so let's just bring this to a close. And I just had this thought for, for two thoughts here. One, one is a warning and one is an encouragement. First, the warning. For anyone who is here as an unbeliever, I would um, recommend that you read um, Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we're in a desperate situation if you see the beginning of those first couple of verses. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. Born dead. We are spiritually dead. We are not alive. We are in serious trouble right out of the gate. And this is the way that we formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Look at this. If you are not saved, look at these words. And were by nature children of wrath. Just as the rest, just like all of us were. That is the warning, that is God's truth for us to flee immorality, to leave the prince of the power of the air, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a sacrifice on Calvary for the forgiveness of our sins. 
the precious blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can save us. It's the only thing that can cover us perfectly. And he gave that as a, as a sacrifice, as an atonement. And we must come to him by faith. And then just secondly, I want to just encourage the believers that as we look at that Ephesians 2.4 again, that I'll never forget it. But God, you know, I was still in verse 1. My mind was still in verse 1 when my heart went to verse 4. Because I knew I was in such serious trouble. That I was dead, dead. I knew I was dead. Actually, I'm pretty sure I was very happy being dead. I liked my deadness. But at some point, that deadness, by the grace of God, ran out. And it no longer looked attractive. And I, I felt like I was the son standing in the, the pig muck with the filthy animals. And I was standing and looking at the glorious glorious righteous savior who sacrificed his life and then verse 4 came in but God being rich in mercy and so I encourage you the fellowship we have a God that we serve he's rich in mercy he's full of grace look around look what he's done in your life and those who are around you today sometimes we feel like we're alone through this world doing the battle but God does have a family, and it's growing day by day. So praise be to God. I can't wait to study the rest of this book of Ephesians. I want to invite you to please stand with me so we sing the song of invitation. Thank you.